Coming up on Home Dunk, a 40-year-old grandfather tries to make it back to the major leagues, and a deconstruction of the mythic power of Tiger Woods. I hit a home dunk. I wish that you had shown up. I played over my head, everything was off the charts. I jumped out the gymnasium and knocked it out the park. Did a handstand and hit a grand slam It was a great day for the fans Man, I got three sacks and broke three bats I gave the crowd money plus free snacks I did a hat trick and a backflip It's on ESPN Classic And you weren't there and it hurt me To watch them retire my jersey I hit a home dunk Thank you, Open Mike Eagle, for that wonderful theme song that is stuck in everybody's head always and forever. Hello, Dunkaroos. It's John Moe. Nice to talk to you again. Nice to have you. Nice to know that in the future you'll be listening to this silently and not talking back to me. Because I honestly, I don't really want to hear from you. No, that's not true. I want to hear from you. I really do. But just for now, just listen to me because... That's the way th- this whole conceit is leveraged. Uh, we got some uh, got some interesting stuff coming up. Uh, a return to a discussion about uh, the mythic power of sports figures with Professor Dana Burgess from Whitman College, uh, my old prof, and uh, as well as Mark Hendrickson, who is uh, trying to get back to the the major leagues by being kind of the weirdest possible pitcher he can. So. Here's what I'm thinking about. We had the band OK Go on my other show, Wits, a while back, back uh, back in the fall. And uh, I, I love the band. Uh, I obviously love their videos. Uh, they're really nice guys. They're very particular. They're, I don't want to say fussy, but they are well prepared. And they run with just as much precision as their videos, which is fascinating to me and uh, not completely in line with what you expect from rock musicians. And one of their songs, I've kind of hummed to myself for years and years and years. And it's, I believe the song's name is This Too Shall Pass. It has that chorus of, let it go, this too shall pass. And they're not the first to say that, but the way they do it musically uh, just really sticks with me. way to get through life. You will return to a state of pretty okay, probably. At the very least, the thing that is stressing you out, if it is causing you anxiety and dread, it will be in the past at some point. If you've got some uh, really important uh, meeting coming up at one o'clock that you know is lasting till two, you know how time works and it will pass. And by two o'clock, that thing will have already happened and it will no longer be hanging over your head. And, you know, that for my anxiety, that, that helps. So I, I keep that in mind. And this applies also to football. The New England Patriots under Bill Belichick are cheaters. 
most recently, <laughs> they have been caught uh, having underinflated footballs in their game against uh, the Indianapolis Colts, the game that they blew the Colts out of the water by a million to six or something, something along those lines. It wasn't even close. But there was some complaints, there was an investigation, and according to the latest news I have heard as I sit here today, uh, most of the balls, 11 out of the 12 balls that have been uh, have been inspected by the NFL were found to be underinflated by two pounds per square inch. Now, we don't know how many times the New England Patriots have cheated without being caught, but they have been caught before. Last time they were caught, it was for videotaping the practices of their opponent. And they got punished, I guess. They got some draft picks taken away or something. Um, but before long, we were talking again, all of us, among the uh, among the fooled, among <laughs> the self-loathing sports fans, or the not self-loathing sports fans, everybody, popular media, was talking about what a brilliant genius Bill Belichick is, and how Tom Brady is one of the greatest of all time, and he's a hero, and we are all supplicants once more to this uh, constructed identity, uh, the the sports media and the fans and all of us. We, we're buying into the Joseph Campbell power of myth of these guys as uh, super geniuses, despite the fact that these two guys, Belichick and Brady, seem to be having a miserable time being involved in football at all. They always appear physically sickened to be part of the game of football. Have you noticed this? Two more joyless people have never walked the earth uh, and enjoyed such evident success, uh, either through legitimate following of the rules or through treachery. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so so they were caught cheating before. It passed. Let it go. This too shall pass, sang Bill Belichick from beneath his hoodie to his quarterback, Tom Brady. Sang Tom Brady to Giselle his wife, and now they've been caught under-inflating footballs in their game against the Colts. And it's kind of a weird case uh, because we don't really know what's going on here. I've I've read up on it. I've uh, heard, you know, interviews with people talking about it, and I still don't quite get it, and I don't think anybody has. Uh, supposedly, if a ball is under-inflated, then it's easier to grip. So if you're a quarterback, you can uh, you can grip it without worrying about it kind of sliding around or slipping uh, so much. And if you're a receiver, you can grab it. If you're a running back, you can hold on to it a little bit better. And the way football works, the way the NFL works right now, is that uh, each team brings their own footballs. And that's the, the balls that they play with on offense. It's a little like... Uh, a little like when I used to play touch football at recess in fifth grade, where <laughs> some kid would bring a ball and then he always got to be the quarterback. So that's still in effect, weirdly, somehow. Um, the balls evidently were supposed to be inspected before the game by referees and then sort of closed off, uh, kept in a separate place where the team could no longer get to them. We don't know if that inspection ever happened, whether that inspection happened and then uh, shady characters from the Patriots uh, got a hold of the balls. Uh, we don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what was going on. So I don't know what happened, and I don't know how much of an effect that it had. And 
that's kind of strange. <laughs> like for something this uh, this huge, I don't want to say important because sports is always just silliness, despite the scowls of Brady and Belichick. But for something this huge, there's just a lot that we don't know. And I just don't think we're ever going to know it. Now, here's something that we do know. There's a few things we do know. There's holding on every play. That's what the, the popular belief, anyway, that the refs could call holding on any play and uh, they choose to call it on some plays and choose not to call it on other plays. Sometimes it's a matter of degree. Sometimes it's a matter of situation. But uh, offensive linemen are constantly holding, and that is against the rules. In, in baseball, the second baseman can make this phantom tag as part of like a double play, and everyone knows that he missed the player. But everyone subscribes to this shared hallucination that he didn't. The phantom tag is just part of baseball. It's breaking of the rules. In basketball, if you're really good, you get to take extra steps holding the ball. You just do. It's called the Jordan rules. It used to be called the Jordan rules. I'm sure it's got, I'm sure it has other names now. And it was just understood. And it's unfair, but it's different degrees of unfair. And it's important to varying degrees. And we don't linger on it. We don't really think about it for very long because there's spectacle to get us past it. There is a spectacular catch. There's a brilliant throw, a devastating hit. There is bread and there are circuses because often the things that then get brushed aside are, are too disturbing to deal with because they kind of shake our foundation of what's going on. If the Patriots win this game, which they did, and the Patriots cheat, which they also did, evidently, then what are we even doing <laughs> with sports? Like, what means anything anymore? It might as well be uh, gymnastics or something where there, there's a, a judge ruling on how good a pass was. And if they get a 9.2, then, then you win the football meet. That's not what uh, point-based sports are supposed to be. Uh, at least it's not what football is supposed to be. And so if there is cheating and underinflated balls and all this, then then what what really happened? I think it strikes an existential chord. Oh, yeah, there's the public radio host bringing the word existential into his sports podcast. I know. But what does it all mean then anyway? And we don't like to think about that. So we just don't. Let it go. This too shall pass. But the things don't really pass. They just stop being worried about. They go into the past, but they never really go away. Manti Teo. Did he get fooled by someone posing as a girl? Notre Dame player supposedly had this girlfriend who was dying, turned out to not exist. Uh, became a big story that, that the sports media especially didn't really follow up on just accepted that this person had lived and died without ever even checking any records or doing any legwork on that story until Deadspin finally did. Did he get fooled by someone posing as a girl? And if so, why was he saying that he had spent actual time with this girl? Did he invent this girl consciously in order to boost his celebrity and his draft stock to make himself more money? Is this his underinflated ball? We stopped asking. He plays for the Chargers now. Nobody brings it up anymore except to some, you know, opponents will trash talk him with it to get in his head. The rest of us just don't care. 
Michael Sam dropped four rounds in mock drafts immediately after he announced that he was gay. He never got on a field during a game last year. He was cut from two teams. And we were told it was all about football until we stopped asking because, ooh, the game is starting. There's something to watch. How about the systematic maiming of players? I am always talking about the systematic maiming of players in the NFL. But how about it? If, if you don't think the NFL is trying to move past that, why is there a concerted effort in the NFL to move to an 18-game schedule? You know, if they're really trying to address some of these issues of permanent lasting injury that are leading to premature death, uh, then why are they trying to make the players play more games? And that's coming, folks, because the, the league is stronger than the players union and players will want to play. And uh, we're just trying to put that in the past. Let it go. This too shall pass. Ray Rice. What did Roger Goodell know when he suspended Ray Rice for just two games? The claim is that he hadn't seen the second videotape of, uh, of Ray Rice clobbering uh, his fiance. The investigator hired by the NFL, paid by the NFL, says there's no evidence that he ever did. The judgment of the leader of the entire NFL is being called into question here. Okay? It's kind of a big deal. The Associated Press, an organization that was not hired by the NFL and which has a lot of professional journalists working in it, stands by their reporting that the league office was in receipt of that second tape. But it's going to go away. You know, we talked about it a lot at the beginning of the season. It will go away. Ray Rice will go away. All players go away. Except Terry Bradshaw. He never goes away. So what happened with the footballs in that game, what effect did it have? Will we ever know? It might be nothing. It might be really something. It's in the best interests, however, of everybody with a financial stake in this for it to be nothing. Do you really think the sports news media industrial complex is going to spend any time on that issue after this week? Of course not. It's going to go away. The Patriots will be fined some token amount, an amount that is meaningless to a concern as wealthy as the Patriot organization, and then it goes away. Because then it'll be the Super Bowl. There's a lot to watch. There's funny commercials. Katy Perry's going to sing. Go Seahawks. Mark Hendrickson, you are attempting a major league comeback with the Baltimore Orioles or with Major League Baseball in general. Uh, Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Uh, Tell me, okay, so you've been out of baseball for, what, a couple years now, since 2011? Well, I have to clarify, I have not been out of baseball. It was something that uh, a couple years ago uh, we had discussions with the Orioles at the time when I was playing with them to change my arm angle. Mm -hmm. So um, 2000. 13, I um, came back and signed with them. I was out of baseball 2012, 2013. I signed with them, played in AAA. Had a pretty good year. Didn't have any uh, inquiries going into spring training in 2014. Ended up playing independent ball here in York um, in 2014. And then I called 
the Orioles as well as anybody else uh, that I know in Major League Baseball. And it worked out that I went down to a minicamp with the Orioles last week, still waiting to hear uh, their interest level. Probably should know something by the end of the month. How did it go for you down there? Uh, I went well. I mean, obviously, that's a little bit uh, earlier than I normally get on a mound based on my preparation for the season, but uh, I was pretty pleased with how everything went, and so uh, just looking for that opportunity. And what is it, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time, and you were in the NBA before Major League Baseball. What is it that makes you still hungry to keep trying this instead of just saying, um, okay, well, I had a good one? different. I mean, I tried, anybody who's, um, you know, asked me, I've told them, in the most part, changing a delivery is kind of like reinventing myself. So basically, even though at the time I was probably 37 years old, everything I knew uh, as far as how to pitch um, had to be completely changed. And that's not something that just happens overnight. And as a result, it was something that took, uh, you know, it's a challenge in itself. And that's kind of what I live for is challenges. And so um, that's the way I look at it. And it's just an opportunity to... You know, when I made the commitment to this, it was to get back to to play against the uh, best baseball players in the world. So that's the motivation right there um, to get back there and and be successful. How do you go about learning this uh, sidearm delivery? What's the process? Uh, A lot of it's a feel. Um, I just have some of the traits that I've been blessed with is just having a feel for sports in general. So for me to pick it up, uh, I picked it up pretty easily, but it's just fine-tuning it. Obviously, when you're talking professional sports, you're talking millimeters and centimeters as far as being successful and not being successful. So it's a very fine line you have to work at. And the precision to be a pitcher at the highest level, there's not a lot of room for error. So for me, it's a lot of trial and error the last couple of years, and I just kept getting better and better. So seeing the progress that I have the last two years has just motivated me even more, and i got a pretty good support team around me uh, not only to prepare myself mentally and physically, but uh, just that support with the family. Is it? Uh, does it do different things to your body in terms of wear and tear throwing the sidearm? Is it easier? Um, I would say it's probably a little bit easier on my arm, but yes, uh, there's just completely different deliveries. So all the muscles that I had been using for my entire life were taking a little bit of a break. They weren't. Uh, they're still getting used, but maybe not as as much as some of the other muscles with the change of delivery. So it took a little while. I know the first year I was doing it was kind of like, okay, what kind of soreness am I going to get here? Because I was totally not used to what was going on. But I think overall it's kind of been refreshing to uh, change everything. And like I said, that to me is the motivation right there. It's just the challenge to take something at the age that I did and you know get back to the highest level. What does it look like for for a batter, a sidearm pitcher coming in, especially you know, big tall guy like you? How 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 is that challenging for the batter? Um, well, the biggest thing for pitchers, and I think this is what the common public maybe don't realize, is a lot of guys throw extremely hard. Obviously, you see radar guns that are in stadiums, and people are kind of blown away with how hard some of these guys throw. Well, for guys to pitch later in life, uh, it's more about deception. Obviously, you can't throw 95 miles an hour you know, into your 40s because if that was the case, you would see more pitchers pitching into their 40s. But as a result, with the sidearm delivery, it's just presenting something that the batter doesn't really see. Um, there's no six foot nine left-handed sidearm pitchers in the big <laughs> leagues, and that's something that I can bring to the table. 
that's going to give me hopefully that advantage for the time that I'm out there. So that in itself presents a challenge, and it's just trying to make the the hitter a little bit uncomfortable with, you know, what I bring to the table when I step on the mound. How about the idea that, you know, you're you're 40, you're a grandfather, and uh, if you make a spot on the Orioles, great for you, but there's some 22-year-old kid who's never gotten to play in the major leagues or the NBA, and, and are you denying somebody else their dream? That's the nature of professional sports. If you look at the, uh, you know, the, the pyramid, so to speak, it's the best of the best. And, you know, for me, even last year, when the Tampa Bay Rays had talked to me about offering me a spot, they said they had nothing at AAA, and they said, oh, we can offer you something at AA. That's when I said, no, I would be taking somebody's spot in AA, because I've already been there, done that, and that's for kids coming up. But when you're talking about AAA, when you're talking about the major leagues, I mean, it is a cutthroat business where you're getting the best of the best that make it, um, obviously, to the big league level. And if I can perform at the big league level, it doesn't matter what age I am, and that's kind of just the nature of the business. But I am very cautious, like I said. If it was to go into the younger levels, which are high A, double A, then you start to take some of those kids who are trying to progress up the ladder. But when you get to AAA in big leagues, it, it doesn't really play that much into it because that's where you have a lot of guys that have major league experience um, in AAA, I mean. And then obviously when you get to the big leagues, nobody's going to give a charity case to the big leagues. If you're in the big leagues, that means you can play. It's and so um, that's just kind of the nature of the business. So from that standpoint, no, I don't feel like I'm – taking anybody's spot because that's just the nature of professional sports. Now, I want to talk about your NBA career because you played a few seasons. You were with the Sixers, you were with the Kings, a couple other places here and there. Part-time, you know, not a starter coming off the bench, but you you had a job. Why did you decide to give that up and uh, become a pitcher? Well, I'd always played both. That's something a lot of people don't realize. I always played both. I mean, the wintertime was basketball, the summertime was baseball. Um, for me, I wanted to go to college and I wanted to experience college basketball. Got a chance to do that. Got a chance to play in the NCAA tournament. And that was everything that, uh, I thought it would be as I progressed. And then there was the thoughts of the NBA. And so I was like, Hey, you know what? That's just first and foremost, it's, it's present. Um, let's go at it. And, you know, when I got to the NBA, there was a, it's such a elite group of players that play in the NBA. just And I say that because there's so few spots yeah. compared to other professional sports. And, you know, my college coach said it best. He goes, I never did anything great on the basketball court, but I did a lot of things good. Uh-huh. And when I got to the NBA, there's a lot of guys who do a lot of great things. And so, you know, for me, it was just a case in point where I was sitting there. You know, I had a couple of years. They were pretty good years. I was making a living, but there was the lure of baseball and the fact that I had advantages. Being six foot nine, left handed, it's kind of like a seven footer in the NBA. Right. You're going to get opportunities, you're going to get looks, and people can't coach that. So that was the advantage that I had. All along, I kind of knew growing up as a kid that if I wanted to play into my 40s, that baseball would be the ticket just because basketball is too, you know, the wear and tear on the body. Just you very rarely see somebody in their 40s um, playing in the NBA. It's just it's too difficult to do. 
Um, so for me, it was just a case in point of saying, hey, how good can I be in baseball? And I've got to dedicate myself more than four months a year. And that's at the time, that's all I was really putting towards baseball. So that was just a common theme. I, I had worked my way up. I signed both to play both. I think the first three years in basketball, I played in the summers for the Toronto Blue Jays. And then I got to a point where they had offered me an invitation to the Arizona Fall League, which um, in discussing with my agent at the time, it was a, an opportunity that I really couldn't pass up. So if I wanted people to take me seriously, I had to go there. So that was kind of the writing on the wall that just was a natural process for me to to make that decision at that time, and that was back in uh, 2000. Mm. Um, when you were growing up in Mount Vernon, I'm I'm from Federal Way, so I've been to Mount Vernon many times. Okay, but uh, when you were growing up in Mount Vernon, did you imagine yourself as a baseball player down the road or a basketball player? Oh yeah, I mean, as a kid, that's all I. That's what I did. I mean, nowadays, I. I but you thought I'm of both. Surprised. I thought both. That's just what I did. That's what my friends did. Um, we didn't think much of it. It's just kind of we were out playing and. And my family exposed me to these sports at a young age, and I was good at it, and I had the uh, motivation. And, um, you know, I I envisioned it as a kid when I was outside shooting baskets or I had a, a trailer that I was making a strike zone and I was throwing a tennis ball too. That's just kind of what got me excited about life. And I knew there were some naysayers that said I couldn't do certain things. And to me, it's it's my journey. And it's something I've always believed in. And, um, you know, I like to prove people wrong. And that's probably why I'm motivated now, because there's some doubters out there. But, uh, you know, for me, the people that think I'm old at 40 probably think that because they couldn't be doing what I'm doing. So uh, that in its own right is, is something that, that motivates a lot of athletes, not just myself. I grew up not far from uh, where you grew up, and I was doing the same things that you're describing, except I sucked real bad. And so... <laughs> It's just that that one minor item can really separate people, I guess. Uh, it does. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of players. If you ask any professional athlete, they'll name ten players that should be uh, that were better than them that yeah. never made it. You have to have a lot of things go right. You have to stay healthy. You have to have a good support system, um, and you just have to have that desire and motivation to really make it a lifelong commitment because. There's a lot of things that are thrown at athletes that can derail them real quick. And that is something that, um, you know, happens a lot. But that's why it's as competitive as it is. I mean, there's very few guys that make it. Is it fun? Oh, I love it. I I wouldn't change it. There's nothing that gives me that kind of feeling except for perhaps my... (laughs) My wedding day as I was waiting for my bride to walk down the aisle. Um... (laughs) There's there's nothing better, and so uh, that feeling is indescribable unless you've been a part of it to some degree. And uh, you know, I just kind of relish it, and it's kind of addicting. What will determine whether you make it to uh, to the major leagues this year? What will come uh, down progression, to? Uh, progression. I just need to um, you know kind of build off of last year, continue uh, to get better. The big thing that I is, it's somewhat difficult when you're if you're playing in AAA is you have to make that projection of how your your stuff would play at the big leagues. When you're at the big league level, nobody cares. As a pitcher, if you get hitters out consistently, you'll still have a job. So it doesn't matter what your stuff plays like. But when you're in AAA, 
and you're trying to get to the, to the next level, a lot of times they're trying to make projections. So for me, it's just being honest. And I've always uh, been somebody that's done that um, because you have to evaluate your skills honestly um, if you want to stick around in this game because it's always going to be adjustments. I mean, uh, my body's not 24 anymore, so I have to make adjustments as I continue to get older um, that fits for where I'm at. And that's something that, um, you know, I, I think I'm pretty good at. So it's just a matter of getting that opportunity, getting my foot in the door first, and let me take take. Uh, Take it where I may. And somewhere Jamie Moyer is listening to this and saying, 40 years old, he's just getting started. So oh, I tell you what, Jamie Moyer, is a, he motivated me watching him pitch, and that's what I mean, just that progression with yeah. age, being in uh, professional sports. I think you even look at some of the guys who have used to throw hard and then they made the adjustments. Trevor Hoffman is somebody who pitched for an extremely long time. His right. stuff at the end of his career was not the same as it was early in his career, but those are guys that I've always looked to because, like you said, Jamie Moyer was 49 years old still pitching. So yeah, yeah. I look at guys that uh, where I want to be and how I want to do it, and Jamie Moyer never threw hard, but he was very, very successful. So uh, kudos to him for getting the, the most out of his career. All right. Well, uh, we'll be rooting for you, Mark Hendrickson, of uh, of potentially the Baltimore Orioles and of a bunch of other teams as well. What a career. All right. Well, good luck, Mark. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Appreciate it. Mythology is an integral part of sports. We often hear about the heroic Tom Brady, the myth of Joe DiMaggio, the legend of Michael Jordan. But uh, the thing about heroes and myths and legends is that uh, they've been around for a really long time, whether they're told around a campfire or told through a podcast, mythology is what it's all about. For expertise on mythology and the mythology of sports, we sometimes turn to Dana Burgess, professor of classics at Whitman College, my former professor at my alma mater. Hello, Dana. Hi, John. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I have asked you to take a look at Tiger Woods as he uh, enters competition this year and see if you could find some mythological parallels. What did you come up with? Yeah, that was a nice assignment, John. It made me think a lot. The first thing that popped into my mythological thinking brain was his name. He's tiger. He's an animal. He's a beast. He's a he's a tiger a in the woods. Wild thing that's yeah. dangerous and uh, different than um, other folks. Right. And partly it was that name tiger that made me think about uh, the Greek hero Heracles, sometimes called Hercules in Latin. Okay. And uh, Heracles is always represented in pictures uh, in a lion skin. In fact, the lion kind of becomes who he is. He oh. kills a lion early in his career, skins him, and puts the skin on. And so it's like he is the lion. So lions and tigers and bears. Right. Well, okay, so that's working with Tiger Woods. Like, I'm thinking of the Masters tournament where the winner gets the green jacket and is very prestigious, and then they, huh. they wear that at subsequent tournaments as a, as a display of strength. Excellent. That's really cool. Yeah. And, you know, you can, you can sort of see in the way that uh, Heracles is represented with his lion skin, you always can pick him out like you could pick out the guy in the green jacket at the right. uh, golf tournament. And Heracles also has a big club, and his uh-huh. club is his, 
his weapon and his symbol of who he is. And a club is a more brutal weapon than some others, and that, again, shows his kind of beast-like quality. And a club goes pretty well for golf, doesn't it? It goes pretty well for golf, and it kind of goes pretty well for his recent downfall, which began when uh, his wife found out about all the cheating that he had done and allegedly chased him out of the house and down the road swinging a golf club at him. Yeah, that's a, a, a beautiful image and certainly one that's rich with mythic uh, resonance. Yes. And when I was thinking about that, I uh, again thought about Heracles and his marital problems because he also had some difficulties in that area. And ah. what were, what were his difficulties? His problem is he's just got huge appetites. He eats large amounts of food when he sits out down to dinner. He drinks huge amounts of wine with his meals. He has huge sexual appetite. Mm. And it's like he's not, because he's kind of a a lion or a big animal, he's not held to the same uh, standards that most people are. So it's expected that he's going to have sex with everybody he can do so with and yeah. eat as much as he can. Wow, that this this does line up uh, quite nicely. Now, the the thing about Tiger Woods, <clears throat> he was a, a phenom early in his career, and people thought, well, he's obviously going to beat Jack Nicholas, who is also known as the the Bear, I believe. Uh, Jack Nicholas as uh, his record of 18 major tournament wins. And Tiger Woods is at 14, but he's been kind of stalled out for a while, and people are beginning to think, well, you know, he's going to be 40 before too long. Uh, His best days may be behind him. You know, is he really the hero that we have come to expect? Is there a period of of disappointment or soul-searching that we can look at Heracles to? Huh. It's interesting you mentioned the early promise, because Heracles, when he was a few days old in his crib, I guess one day old in his crib, his uh, evil stepmother sent two snakes to kill him, and he strangled them in his crib, and it was that as a baby, and that was what revealed to the world that he was Heracles, because he had early promise, as you put it. Right. And, and, uh, yeah. But as far as the downfall part goes, yes, the story of Heracles' relations with his wife are all tied in with his downfall. And I know that Tiger Woods uh, had some trouble with his game following his marital difficulty. Yes. And uh, and that's certainly uh, consistent with Heracles, who, uh, because of his huge sexual appetite, uh, winds up getting killed by his wife. Um, She gives him a shirt that's poisoned, and he puts the shirt on, and it it burns him. It puts him on fire, and uh, that's how he dies. And the reason he got given this shirt was because he had uh, cheated on his wife uh, so robustly. Uh, Does he ascend to Olympus? Is he, because he's a demigod, right? Uh huh. That's a kind of tricky issue because, um, in some versions of the story, Heracles just dies in wretched pain, aware of what caused his death. And in other versions, yes, he's made a god and uh, and sort of resides in luxury up in Olympus. But mm. um, so you can't myths are often of various forms, so we can't really. Uh, it's not like there's a right answer to that one, but certainly in some versions, yes, he gets an eternal reward despite uh, having caused some problems while he was on Earth. Now, uh, Hercules or Heracles is 
uh, really often portrayed in popular culture. There's always movies being made about him. Uh, it like all I ever can think of is, oh yeah, the the really really strong guy. Do you feel like in the modern representations of it, people are missing the nuance and the the contradictions and the full complexity? That's a that's a really cool question because Heracles in the ancient world was not considered that bright, mm. and he, he was yeah he was big and he was fearless. But he was certainly not a great intellect. And, and I think that kind of shows that they didn't need a hero to be or do everything. They were interested in a certain character type, and they developed that. But uh, he's usually physical prowess is his principal characteristic. Right, right. So we've got uh, so we've got a lion worn as a garment versus a tiger in the woods. <laughs> we've got wives. We've got clubs. We've got pride. We've got strength. We've got early promise in either strangling a snake or, in Tiger Woods' case, demonstrating a golf swing at the age of three on the Mike Douglas show. Uh, I, I think I think this lines up real nice. All right. Dana Burgess from Whitman College. We will check in with you down the road for more of the mythology of sports. Great. Thanks a lot. Turning to cricket in the Big Bash League in Australia. Big match recently between the Melbourne Renegades and the Adelaide Strikers. Well, Strikers won by 22 runs. That means Melbourne is out of the playoffs and Adelaide will take the top spot. A couple days later, on the 21st, Melbourne took on the Perth Scorchers at Melbourne. Despite being presumably despondent over uh, over their team's fortunes, they somehow managed to rally and uh, beat Perth. Yes, Melbourne beat Perth by three wickets with three balls remaining. And you know what that means. And if so, tell me. Hey, I'd love to hear from you in general. Uh, if you have ideas for the show, tell me what you like. Tell me what uh, what you don't like so much, or tell me tell me what you'd like more of on the show. Just email me jmo j m o e at mpr.org, not n m as in mo mopublicradio.org. Uh, I'd love to hear what you think. Be sure to go to infiniteguest.org and check out uh, check out our blog, check out all these great podcasts that we have. Uh, Open Mike Eagle, whose song you heard earlier, uh, has a podcast called Secret Skin. He's got a great interview up with Kamal Bell right now. W. Kamal Bell, the comedian. Uh, Home Dunk is produced by Nina Patak. We get engineering help from all over the building. We get production help from Steve Nelson and from Peter Clowney. I'm John Moe. Bye now. <laughs>